Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Welcome to Bird Shit, everyone. If you've been following along on Instagram, you likely noticed the whirlwind of activity over here in the past few weeks. After my trip overseas and our joint road trip across Canada to my new home in Maine, we're finally settling back into a podcast paste. Today, we're coming at you with one of the most insightful and heartwarming interviews either of us has ever conducted. We originally reached out to Laura Erickson to talk about the birds of Harry Potter, and we had a fantastic conversation with her in episode 11, which we released two episodes ago. However, after researching Laura's long list of accolades, we knew we wanted to share more of her knowledge with the world. This episode is the second half of our interview with Laura. It's filled with her inspirational perspective on life, relatable observations about birding as a hobby, and some stories you really have to hear from her in order to believe their validity. If you're not familiar with Laura, here's a very brief reminder of her long list of credentials. Laura's been watching birds since 1953, but it took two decades and several spark birds, which we'll discuss, to get out there birding. Since her first official birding jaunt on March 2nd, 1975, she's never stopped. She's written more than a dozen books about birds, including National Geographic's Pocket Guide to the Birds of North America, the American Birding Association's Field Guide to the Birds of Minnesota, and the one that she considers the most important, 101 Ways to Help Birds. She was also the science editor at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for a couple of years. Laura is the first and only woman to win the American Birding Association's highest honor, the Roger Tory Peterson Award for Promoting the Cause of Birding. She's won several other awards for writing and bird conservation, but considers one of her greatest achievements to be selected as a celebrity judge for what was once a Duluth, Minnesota institution, the Geek Prom. If you stick around until the end of this episode, you'll also learn why she is the self-proclaimed queen of bird shit, which we totally agree with. One more housekeeping note. Moving forward, we'll be releasing episodes every other week on Wednesdays. We want to make sure we're putting out the best quality content for our listeners, and moving to an every other week format gives us time to research, record, and edit episodes that resonate with your birdiest bird interests. We're always looking for new ideas, too. Feel free to drop us a line at hellobirdshit at gmail.com or send at birdshitpodcast a DM on Instagram. Okay, let the show begin. During our research, we saw photos of you and your education owl, Archimedes, who you told us sadly passed away a few years ago. We'd love to learn a little bit more about your time with Archimedes. Can I ask where you got him from? Um, From the Back to the Wild Wildlife Rehab Center in Sandusky, Ohio. And he has a cool backstory. Some children, I think in Cleveland, but I'm not sure, found what looked like a dead little baby bird in their backyard. And they uh, touched it, and it was cold to the touch. So they went and told their mom, and they got some toilet paper, a paper towel or something to pick it up with, except it wiggled. It was still alive. So their mother brought them to the Back to the Wild Wildlife Rehab Center, and that's in Castalia, Ohio. Uh, The little thing was very close to death, and it had apparently been tossed out of the nest cavity by one of its parents because they thought it was dead. And although little baby owls are happy to have a dead little baby owl in there, they don't notice that it's their brother or sister, but it works like a step stool to be (laughs) even closer to that cavity for food. Oh, my gosh. But they, maggots and things will come in and start making a mess of things. So the parents apparently threw them out. And the poor little thing was covered with wounds on one side of its body. It didn't have any feathers yet, but one side of its body was covered with abrasions on its skin. And the other side was covered with these little paired puncture wounds. Apparently, when it got too sick, to stand up and keeled over the side that was on the the floor of the cavity where all the you know rough wood is just anytime he moved it scraped his skin and the other side was because he was like a little step stool on the nest floor and the brothers and sisters weren't trying to hurt him but they were sitting on him with their sharp little paired talons 
so the poor little guy was covered with hurts and needed a whole lot of topical antibiotics and steroids just for the skin. But when he arrived, she took a blood sample and he had one of the kinds of blood parasites that are carried by flies and other things. And when they bite little cavity-nesting birds, the bite is injecting some of these piggyback parasites that were riding in the fly only to find one of the fly's victims. So the parasite was very easy to treat once she knew what it was. He had to be on intravenous antibiotics and medication to kill the parasite. And at first he had to be fed with a stomach tube. And then he was just so fragile that he needed a lot of hand treatment, you know, rubbing the salve on him and everything. And owl faces are like human faces. They're flat. They have forward-facing eyes. They have something that sticks out in the middle, whether it's a nose or a beak. And one of the reasons every culture in the world has some sort of mythology about owls is because they look so human-like. And they also look very cat-like because so many of them have yellow eyes and some have tough where cats have ears, and those two things combine an owl's nocturnal habits to make every culture want to have some mythology about them. And uh, sometimes it's very dark and associated with the night Mm -hmm. and death, and sometimes because we're ourselves a very egocentric species, we tend to think anything that looks like us has to be smart. (laughs) So a lot of it has to do with them being very wise. But they look at us and they think we look like owls. So they imprint very quickly on people if people hand rear them. That's why virtually no rehab centers, including Back to the Wild, hand feed orphaned baby owls. They just give them to one of their resident owls to parent. And both male and female adult owls are just revved up right from the start to feed little baby owls of their species. And so normally they don't get imprinted anymore now that people understand how that works. But there was no choice with Archimedes because he was so just to keep him alive was going to require him to be manhandled. Mm-hmm. This is already like the best episode of Birdship Podcast that has ever been recorded. He produced a lot of birds. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. I just like, I've just been sitting here with my jaw dropped the entire time. But the problem was when they got him well, he grew in all his feathers. He was perfectly strong and healthy later than other screech owls were, but he got healthy and ready to release. As he was able to hunt on his own, they put him out in an enclosure with other screech owls, and every night they would put in uh, dark mice, mice that were naturally colored rather than white mice, and Uh, Each owl in there was marked with food coloring so that in the morning they would catch as many as they could and weigh them and make sure they were putting on weight, meaning they were hunting successfully. And he was doing just fine. So they brought him out to a woods and released him. And everything was cool for a day or two. And then all of a sudden, this family was taking a walk in the woods And the father was the tallest one. And all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, in flies a little owl and lands on his head. (sighs) And fortunately, he was with his family because if an owl comes up behind you and you have no idea what just suddenly landed on your head, the impulse (gasps) would be to swat it or hit it or something. But the kids were immediately yelling and telling him what was happening. So he kind of you know, scrunched down and they took it off his head and it was this little owl. So there's two weird things. He landed on their dad's head and he was partly colored. I think he had like green on his left wing. And so they brought him 
to the nearest rehab center, which just happened to be where he came from, and they recognized him. And I love telling the story to little kids. I say, so the first thing they did was they weighed him. And do you think he was heavier or lighter than when they released him? And the kids will always guess that he was lighter and he was so hungry that he went to people. But no, he was heavier. He was hunting fine in the wild. But he was lonely because Screech Owl families stay together for quite a few weeks after the young have fledged. And they're very social within their family. They preen each other's faces and everything. So he was looking for a family. So now they knew he could hunt fine. And so they didn't need to catch him anymore to weigh him. So now what they did, they put him back in the enclosure. And every time one of the volunteers or the rehabber went in there, if he didn't immediately fly away from them, they shot him with a super soaker. Oh, my gosh. It was like aversion therapy. Yeah. Pretty soon, like within a couple of days, anytime anybody came in there, he was out of there. So now they knew he was ready to release again. And they brought him to a different forest and let him loose. And everything was cool for a day or two. And then uh, I think it was this boy and girl in high school who were walking through the woods holding hands and it was oh so romantic and all of a sudden she was the taller one and he landed on her head (laughs) he had definitely learned to be terrified of people if they were holding a super soaker Oh, my gosh. So he could not be released after that. There's regulations to prohibit wildlife rehabbers from releasing what they call an unreleasable bird. And if they're tame enough to approach people, they're in danger themselves, but also pose a danger, and especially with owls, because there are so many bizarre superstitions about them. They just are not allowed to let a tame owl free. So he had to go either be euthanized or be sent to a licensed wildlife or research center. They had him for a year and I was giving a talk in Ohio. This was back in 2000. He was hatched in 99. And After my talk, I was talking to this woman who was just fascinating. She ran this rehab center, and my talk had been about owls, but she wanted to learn more about their natural history. And when she found out I had a license to keep a small owl, but I did not yet have one, her face lit up because she was only allowed to keep him for one year after it was determined he wasn't releasable, and the year was almost up, and she was going to have to euthanize him. Oh, well, that's perfect timing. Yeah, I had to call my husband. He had to find my permit, which was, uh, I keep my things very organized and filed away, but my file drawers are not alphabetical. They're organized taxonomically, so he had to figure out where owls fit in the grand scheme of bird taxonomy to find the right drawer to get my permit. He faxed that to me. I had to pay $75 to travel with an animal. Uh, She put him in a little cardboard container you'd buy a guinea pig from a pet store in, and there was a little dead mouse in there, so it did qualify as carrying luggage. This was before 9-11, but the box had to go through the x-ray machine, but they let him sit on my hand and just go through the Uh, metal detector. They didn't have to pat him down? (laughs) This was at the Cleveland airport, and it's a little, I guess it's not surprising, but it was disconcerting to see how many people gather around security when you're going through with an owl. Yeah, I gotta imagine you don't see that every day. No, I only, I got him late in the afternoon or early evening, and I was going to be flying out on an early morning flight. And so I had to get him comfortable with me so he wouldn't be scared out of his gourd on the flight. So I set my clock and got up every hour and just stroked his the feathers on his face and put my face close 
Yeah, but he never preened me until like 4 a.m. And then he finally preened me, and then uh-huh. I knew he was cool with me. And <laughs> and uh, so he, he had to stay in, you know, the box during the flight under the seat and everything. But he was every now and then I'd look in and stroke him a little bit. So he did fine on his first airplane flight. Um, can I ask you a question about just kind of taming birds? Um, I had read a book about ghost hawks. I'm probably saying that wrong. Or ghost hawks? Goshawks. Yes, goshawks. And I, in that book, um, they talk about how they keep the birds up all night and don't let them sleep. It, is that the book H's for Hawks? Yes. Oh, that book drove me crazy. <laughs> First off, I just don't like falconry. I agree. And I don't like the idea of taming a wild bird to be a possession, even a temporary possession. It's proving your will is stronger than the birds, making the bird become submissive, which is, you know, when I was a rehabber, a few times I was brought sharp-shinned hawks, which are tiny relatives of goshawks, they're exhibitors, and they're so fierce. And like, I've gotten all kinds of owls, and I can have a great horned owl, which is the fiercest of the ones we get here, the most dangerous to people. And by preening their faces, I could calm them down, but I wasn't making them submissive. What that body language is to an owl is what their families do, not to make them submit and lose some sort of battle of wills, but simply to say, we're family, we're friends, we're not, I'm not going to hurt you. Keeping a hawk up all night and all the things you have to do to make that hawk submit to your will is an entirely different, awful thing in my mind. I agree. I had trouble getting through the book because I was like, this seems so wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I tried to avoid reading it, but so many people were sending me copies and I finally read it. But I am sad to say I did not like that (laughs) book. Glad to know I don't have to read it. Thanks for giving me the overview, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I have tamed some birds in my neighborhood. Some of my chickadees will actually tap on my window to get my attention when I've been opening the window and giving them mealworms. But any chickadee, if it comes to your hand at all, it's on the chickadee's terms. Yes. And if I ever tried to grab it, it would be out of there. They're... They're only trusting me conditionally. Uh, they're they're sort of my role model of how to be, where you're open and friendly. But if someone actually gives a sign that they want to hurt you or dominate you or make you do something you don't want to do, um, I'm out of there. <laughs> <laughs> My chickens were the exact same way. Like, I could only get them to do anything if there were mealworms involved. (laughs) Oh, chickadees will even just come down and be just sort of friendly. You know, chickadees, they're like these super liberal birds. They like everybody. They're very inclusive. Winter chickadee flocks include all different species of birds. The woodpeckers will join them. other chickadees, but also warblers, vireos, nuthatches, and chickadees are totally inclusive, totally welcoming, except if you're a predator, then they will have quite a few naughty chickadee words to say to you, <laughs> and, and they will avoid you, and bird banders hate catching chickadees, because chickadees know exactly where to peck and bite to inflict the most pain on anyone holding them against their will. I had to, um, so I worked in a bird rehab briefly earlier this summer, and I had a bunch of young fledgling robins, and they were not, like, I had to clean their cage. They were not nice. Baby robins? They they were fledglings. But yeah, they definitely knew where to peck you. (laughs) 
birds don't like to be manhandled. And even ones who will come to our hands willingly, which robins will not do, um, some of them have learned during cold springs that I'm putting mealworms into something and they'll watch for me to open the window to put the mealworms out, but they'll never come to the dish until I'm in and the window's closed. That's such an interesting thing about birds, what their boundaries are, because it's different for different species. But that was one really helpful thing when I would have to rescue owls in the winter. Uh, I was taught this by a a great gray owl expert from Canada named Robert Nero. Um, he told me about the alloprening and how when he banded adult great gray owls, when he trapped them, what he first did was just stroke their heads a bit and bow his head right in their faces. And they would just start preening his rapidly balding hair, he says. <laughs> And it was so interesting uh, because that helps the bird. You're showing it on its terms that you're not going to hurt it. You can talk to birds all you want and say all your intentions, but they haven't figured out how to understand our language any better than we've, un you know, figured out how to understand theirs. So, I mean, to be fair, sometimes I don't understand our own language. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It, it, movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind crack me up because we have these people putting all these resources into communicating with a life form that has no clue about anything about Earth. When there are millions of, of intelligent life forms right on this planet that mm -hmm. we don't know how to communicate with. There's an arrogance that says there's something out there that's more like us than the carbon-based life forms here that share a whole lot of our DNA and biochemistry. It's kind of shocking, really, that we can be so arrogant. Yeah, I read The, uh, the Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. I'm in the index of that book. <laughs> oh, you are? Okay. Oh, cool. Admittedly, I did not read the index because it was like 50 pages. Like there is so much information in that book. Well, she quoted me when she was talking about Scrub Jay funerals. Oh, yeah. I was like, I, that book right now on my bookshelf is just nothing but post-it notes because every sentence was just incredible. She's so amazing. So. Oh, she's amazing. I know. I really... Get, put in a good word for us. Maybe she'll show up at our podcast someday. <laughs> she got this information from my blog. I never talked to her. Like, I've never met her. So I have had no idea that she was using something of mine until I was reading the book. Wow, she found you the same way we did. <laughs> you know, one of the questions that we always like to, to try to learn from people, since we're beginner birders and we're trying to get other people sort of into birding, uh, it's always cool to hear people's spark bird story. And spark birds are kind of the bird that gets people into birding. I know you've said that it took a few birds to sort of get you into birding as a, as a practice. But what was sort of the spark bird that, you, that got you started? Well, that's where I really actually have to mention four birds. Uh, when I was very little, we lived in Chicago in a little two-flat apartment and if I sat by the front window, I would um, stand up backward on our sofa so I could look out the window. And we had house sparrows that filled the bushes, and I loved them. I loved listening to them cheeping, and at bedtime, they would all be like telling each other stories about their day's adventures. And I just loved that. They seemed so happy and like they had they must have had really great stories because they would just all be talking at once about it and I just <laughs> loved that and I loved pigeons they came in so many colors I loved how they walked with their head going first to check it out before their feet decided whether or not they wanted to catch up but I also loved pigeons because they gave me the competitive edge against my sister when we would stand there together there was a 
drawbridge several blocks away, and you couldn't see it at all until it went up. And I could always predict when it was going to go up. And that was because the pigeons took off. That's so smart. Right before it went up. And uh, it was so cool. So I loved pigeons. And those were birds I remember from before we moved to the suburbs when I was four. So I was very little and already had stories about pigeons and house sparrows. They were really deeply important to me. And when we moved to the suburbs, we had house sparrows under my bedroom window again. um, And I just loved that. But also when we were there, Um, my grandpa had pet canaries and I could always mimic the canaries when I went to his house I'd climb up on a chair and look in the cage and go beep beep (laughs) and they would go back to me and I could imitate it and one time when he was at our house a cardinal sang and he said he bet if I practiced whistling I could sound like a cardinal and I didn't know how to whistle at all I was like sucking it in at first (laughs) and it just didn't sound like whistling, but I practiced and practiced. And one morning I nailed it. I was hearing a cardinal outside and I started mimicking it with the cheer, cheer whistle. And all of a sudden he flew to the branch right next to my window, looked in right at me and whistled. Oh, that's so cool. That was so thrilling. My grandpa gave me this book, the little golden stamp book of birds. And the prettiest bird on the cover besides the cardinal was the blue jay. And one day my family went to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and a blue jay squawked. And I looked up and saw it, and that was the bird in my book. That is the first bird I ever identified from a picture in a book. And I was thrilled. I thought we must be in true wilderness. They have blue jays. (laughs) But then... I had a big crush on my high school debate partner when I was in high school. And so every weekend at the beginning of the school year, I would race to downtown Chicago to the public library. And one day on my way to the library, I found a dead bird laying on the sidewalk. It was a tiny bird. It was tinier than a house sparrow. It was this beautiful olive brown color greenish brownish with pure white underside with these black spots and it had an orange crown and it had these perfect white circles around its pitifully dead eyes oh I was so sad I could see why it was dead in downtown Chicago but I had no idea why it was there I went into a McDonald's and got a napkin and wrapped it up and threw it out. I didn't know what else to do. I was so sad. I was on my way to the Chicago Public Library where there were books that would have told me what that bird was, but I had no clue. I was just looking up compulsory arbitration for debate, researching our debate topic. (laughs) I did end up marrying my debate partner um, because I researched so well, but meanwhile, I had no idea what that bird was. Well, I must have been blathering about birds, even though I didn't know anything about them back then, because for Christmas, after we got married, we didn't have any money to buy each other presents, but he told his mom to buy me a field guide and binoculars. And I opened up the field guide to the oven bird. That was the dead bird I'd found. And that was the spark that, lit me on fire because the books said they were common. It showed the map included Chicago. I still didn't know at the time that they are one of the quote super collider birds that are most drawn to windows, lighted windows. I didn't know that yet, but the book gave me this promise that I could see them in real life alive. And blue jay and cardinal and pigeon and house sparrow were all in that book. And that was what it took. What uh, what field guide was it that you got? Uh, that was the Peterson guide. And I read that cover to cover. This was Christmas of 74. And it mentioned the golden guide. So I bought that. And that actually became my go-to field guide. 
the Golden Guide was my beloved field guide uh, that I took everywhere. Uh, the pages all fell out very quickly, so I made my first copy into flashcards because I became a junior high teacher uh, a couple of years later, and then I got a new one. Um, but that was the field guide I most loved. And the closest to that now is the National Geographic field guide. The thing I loved about the Golden Guide, and it's the only field guide that has these, is it had the sonograms, the little pictures of the bird songs. Because I could read music, I had an easy time understanding the sonograms and loved them. That's so helpful. I've not seen that in any guide since. No, and it wow. isn't. Uh, but now, all of a sudden, uh, two guys wrote a book called The Warbler Guide, and that has them. We could have definitely used that. We had so much trouble identifying warblers. <laughs> oh, warblers are so hard anyway, though, because they have so many different songs within a species. Like yellow warblers have two entirely different songs. One is the stereotypical yellow warbler song that no other bird sings, but the other one can sound dead on like a chestnut-sided warbler. American red starts have multiple songs, and they have one that's very stereotypical and easy to identify, but a lot of them don't sing that song hardly ever, so, you know, you have to find the bird to be sure until you start recognizing all the alternate songs. But it was very helpful for a lot of birds for me. I didn't understand why nobody else was using them. Yeah, that seems like something that would be a great feature to have. A lot of birders just totally ridiculed the guides for using that, thought it was a bad waste of space. And that's how the reviews read, so mm -hmm. nobody else picked up on it except me, <laughs> because I <laughs> always read the book rather than the review. Yeah, 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 yeah. Smart. So um, kind of changing themes a little, for our podcast, we've tried to keep an ecological perspective on birding. And when we were looking at your website, we noticed that you've written a book titled 101 Ways to Help Birds. So this is such a wonderful and much needed book. And I was wondering if you might talk about what motivated you to write this and maybe your favorite tip that you put in the book. Well, it was increasingly frustrating over the years as a wildlife rehabber, as someone who produced a radio show about birds. So lots and lots of people would call me up with questions or having problems with birds. It was impossible for me to miss how many ways we people hurt birds. Some of the ways are very hard to avoid are driving I always say drive at the slowest speed that is safe, courteous, and convenient. You don't want to be driving 50 miles an hour down a freeway where the speed limit's 70 because it's neither safe nor courteous. But the slowest speed both reduces the chances of hitting the birds with our cars, and way more birds are killed by cars each year than people like to acknowledge. But also, we save energy, and saving energy helps birds in a whole lot of very important ways, climate change being one very obvious way, but also when we extract oil and refine it and transport it, we cause a whole lot of additional ecological impacts, some of which kill birds very directly. Driving at the slowest speed is so important. I buy my coffee certified bird-friendly by the Smithsonian, but just buying it like rainforest uh, certification where you know it was grown in shade under natural trees is so important. And it's not just important for those tropical birds. It's important for our birds when they go down to the tropics in the winter. I think that my favorite way, because it gave me a very big personal favor for doing it was to eat lower on the food chain and especially eat less beef. And I did a big year back in 2013 and going around birding 
in Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas and New Mexico, where so much was, land was so overgrazed. And going by the hideous feedlot was so freaky that I decided no more beef for me. And I stopped. Well, I didn't stop cold turkey because the last beef I'd eaten had actually been a cheeseburger at McDonald's because I needed to use their internet and needed to eat. So I went to McDonald's and I did not want that to be the last beef I'd eaten. Amen. So I went to this charming little thing. I am not making this up. It was called the Owl Cafe. (laughs) And they had this amazing chili cheeseburger. So that was the last beef I have eaten. And how did this directly reward me? In December, I was in um, California. And I was looking at Point Reyes for a, um, I needed Pacific Golden Plover for my my big year list. And there was a place where they were supposed to be. And I went there multiple times during the day, but there was a birder from Boston who was trying to get this bird. And he looked so annoyed with me being there, like my presence would somehow scare it away. So I would just keep going because I'd never birded anywhere in the place. And I figured it was a crapshoot whether I'd actually see the Pacific Golden Plover anyway. So I kept going away and I came back at like 2.30 in the afternoon. He was bundling up all his stuff, putting it in the car, throwing it in the car. It was just like fit to be tied because he hadn't seen the bird. He was so annoyed that he drives off at huff. And I'm on this little dirt road all by myself. And they have some cattle that they raise at Point Race. I hadn't eaten beef in months, and my conscience was clear, so I could make eye contact with them. And one cow just looked at me, and I looked at it, and I said hi, and it walked over. And so I walked over to the fence and reached up, and the moment I petted it, a Pacific Golden Plover called and flew over. Oh, my gosh. So that cow <laughs> knew I had a clean conscience and deserved to see that bird, I guess. I'm, I'm already a vegetarian, but that story alone <laughs> would convert me to vegetarianism because that's, that's just, like, so cool. My daughter's a vegan. I dabble in mm-hmm. veganism, but the problem is I used to raise chickens, and I, I raised them for eggs. Mm-hmm. And I just got so used to eating eggs that I don't know how I could give up eating eggs. It was different when I was raising them as opposed to now that I have to buy them. Like, I can't believe what people pay for eggs. And knowing what goes into raising chickens and just thinking about some of the places that those eggs come from just drives me crazy. So mm-hmm. I always try to buy the nicest eggs that I can. But I hope someday to have chickens again and then I won't have to have this moral dilemma either. Yeah, we have a good co-op where we can get them local yeah, that's definitely a great way to do it. But don't tell your daughter. <laughs> I Well, she knows I couldn't give up Terry Garcia. Oh. That, that's the oh. bottom line for me. <laughs> yeah, ice cream is hard to give up. Yeah, I tried to touch on all the ways we affect birds and things we can do. But I still like it when people buy the book because I had a lot of trouble publishing it. Uh, publishers were saying people don't want a book about conservation. So now all the material from the book, along with pictures and updates and additional ways, is right on my website. That's awesome. Yeah, I know my my husband's like a huge coffee buff. And so I'm definitely going to look into some shade-grown coffee, which some people say it tastes better since it often takes longer to grow. So if you're feeling like you can't give up coffee, it could taste a lot better if it was shade-grown and bird-friendly. So I get the Smithsonian certified stuff. That sounds good. I'm going to check that out. That sounds like a birthday present. Hope you're not listening, Sam. So we are fairly young birders. And, you know, you've been birding for like a lot longer than we have. Since before you were alive. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. How do you like that? I mean, but we haven't really seen uh, a lot in our birding group since we've joined them, like in terms of younger demographics. But how... How do you think being a birder or like, you know, if if we were to have kids, how do you think teaching them about birds can kind of impact them growing up or making birds better part of of, uh, like a younger generation's experience? 
My children, I probably dragged them to one too many sewage ponds when they were little. So none of them are actual birders, but they all love birds and they all love being outdoors and notice birds. And it makes their lives richer. They're doing studies that show that the more time we're unhooked from electronics, but hooked into the natural world, the natural sounds and sights and smells of being in a forest and along, you know, lake shores and things, that has real value for our mental health. I was just reading an article, I forget what newspaper, I think it was the New York Times, it was a story about a woman who's 103 years old who took up uh, running the 50 and 100 yard dashes and set a record for 100 year olds doing it three years ago. And this year she won the gold in both the 500 and the 100 meter dashes but she was slower than last time but she told the reporter well I'm older (laughs) (laughs) yeah but but when they were asking her about helped her life her to live so long her advice was to look for the magical moments in your life and one of the kinds of moments she mentioned was seeing beautiful birds wow you know, watching birds doesn't necessarily keep you alive to be 103 years old, but it really improves the quality of your life. I had surgery back when I was a teacher, when I was in my 20s, and it was during spring migration, and I had to get outside to see the migrating warblers and gnat catchers and stuff. I still remember the first gnat catcher I saw when I walked out there, and it hurt like heck because it was abdominal surgery. And back then, they would always give you a bigger incision than they do now and stuff. But it's like you didn't even notice it hurting when you're looking at a beautiful little blue-gray gnat catcher or something. And so it got me back on my feet, and I'm sure I recovered quicker just because I was a bird watcher and didn't want to miss spring migration. That There's definitely something to that. I know one of the things that I, I've lived in Chicago now for like three and a half years or so, and it was really hard for me moving from a place of a lot of natural beauty to the cityscape. And as soon as I discovered birding, it's like my whole perspective on nature here just really changed because I was griping about how little access I had to the woods or like even even like the lake in which you can actually swim in the lake uh and and all these things that I was so used to having from where I was from and then I you know you put a pair of binoculars up and you can literally be anywhere just sort of taking in these these magnificent creatures that are all around us it was funny I didn't take up birding you know where I actually knew how to find birds and have binoculars to look at them until I was in college But all of a sudden, I would go back to our little suburb, North Lake, and there were so many birds I'd never, ever noticed. It's like they had just suddenly appeared. They couldn't have been there when I was little, could they? It was so (laughs) funny discovering how much I had never seen that was right there in plain sight. I was in a Jewel Osco parking lot somewhere along the Des Plaines River, and a prothonotary warbler started singing. And it was like, no whoa. Um, it, there was so much I had missed. And when I travel, if I go to a city, I notice the birds there. No matter where I go, my visits are richer and have much more depth because I know about birds. I suppose that's true if you immerse yourself, heart and soul, into anything, you notice it more and it becomes more, you know, a part of your awareness. But birds are everywhere and it's amazing. Just watching movies, you hear them in the soundtrack and then you can criticize it or say, yay, they they caught that. Um, 
but they often use inappropriate sounds for the places that they set movies in. So, but you notice that too. I know that for the Augusta Gulf um, in Georgia, a lot of people wrote in because they were using inappropriate birds on their soundtracks. It was so annoying. And it, it was an <laughs> affront, not just because of the inappropriateness of it, but the reason they were putting in bird sounds in the background was to make it sound like a golf course is a natural landscape, which it is not. And so there was a a falseness that was worse than when they do it in a movie, in my mind, because in the movie, it's just part of a fake fictional world. But here they were putting it in as if it was real and as if you could really have a healthy bird population in a golf course that gets laced with pesticides. Yeah, we in Michigan, I think, have the second most golf courses out of any state. I think Florida's first, and we can only use them six months of the year. So whenever we drive past a golf course, I generally complain about it. Yeah, some of them have much better policies than others for minimizing pesticide use and and fertilizer use, those are are two issues that really affect water quality and the survival of a lot of insects and things. Well, thanks for that. And Laura, I think we have one last question for you, and this is more of a general question for our listeners, but what tips would you give to get starting in birding or improve your skills if you're a novice birder? Well, I think the most important thing any beginner can do is when you see a bird, watch it. Pay attention to what it does, how it flies. And it doesn't matter if it's a robin or a house sparrow. Um, You need to know robins and house sparrows. So when you see new birds, you notice them right off that that's different than what you know. That's great advice, too, because I know I just assumed that every sparrow I saw was a house sparrow. And then I went on a birding expedition done by the Chicago Ornithological Society. And we were out on this trip and like I learned about the Savannah Sparrow. And then like a few days later, I was walking near my office and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's a Savannah Sparrow. Like I never would have even distinguished that as being a different bird if I hadn't just started paying attention to them a little bit more. And like even even when I'm like sitting at my desk and a bird flies by the window, I'm like there. Like I like go out there and I'm like, huh. And the other day I was like, you know what? I've never seen a cardinal out here before and there's a cardinal out here before. So just I think it's it's cool because you can get more acquainted with your own environment, even if you feel like you know, you're, you're always in the same place. It's amazing that birds can sort of indicate those changes in a way. Yeah. And I encourage people to find out what local organizations lead field trips. And a lot of times the people who go on bird walks, there'll be a lot of them that are my age, meaning old enough to be your mother or grandmother. But Everybody's there to look at birds. And so if you don't care how cool your companions are, it could be just fine, even if they're wearing cargo pants and a belt pouch, um, fanny pack, you know. We think that's cool. (laughs) I think it's cool, but that's me. Um, You know, I never minded Miss Jane Hathaway on the Beverly Hillbillies either. But go on bird walks because you will suddenly be shown things that would have taken you a lot longer to figure out on your own. But also, don't get so tied in on the bird walks because you see a lot more birds on those than you do all alone. Uh, Don't stop going on your own because you will learn more on your own that you'll really absorb as permanent understanding when you're seeing it on your own. It's very easy to let the leader of a field trip point everything out and just be absorbing, but not really learning it as well as when you find it on your own. 
Yeah, that's actually really good advice. We haven't had someone say that before, but that's a really good point. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add at all? We have absolutely loved talking to you. I have loved talking to you guys. You're so enthusiastic and articulate and smart and fun. Oh, thank you so much. Right back at you, girl, because this (laughs) has been probably the most prepared and eloquent we've ever sounded. (laughs) Mo, don't give us away. Oh, yeah. Okay. You make us look good. It's it's great. On my ill-fated PhD, I was studying nighthawk digestion because that was the bird I was um, most fascinated with when I was rehabbing. And I got interested in it because once a day they had this horrifying liquid brown poop. And the rest of the time it looked like normal bird shit. And so I wanted to find out why. And I actually figured it out. But um, so my husband said, I will be known far and wide as the bird shit queen. You will be. (laughs) We're going to make you a crown. We're going to send it to you in Duluth. You totally earned it. Wait, so I now now you've totally let us on with that question though. Why why do they have that like one really bad poop a day? Well, what I found out was that ruffed grouse have really weird poop once a day, and it is because in their intestines, right where the large and small intestines meet, where our appendix is, they have blind offshoots called cecia. And the cica grow enormous in the winter and shrink in the spring. And there's a bacterium in the cica that anaerobically digests cellulose, breaks apart the woody cells that were part of the buds that they eat in winter that they don't eat in spring and summer. But nighthawks don't eat cellulose. So I was thinking, well, why would they have them? But then I realized that when they eat insects, if they could take advantage of like the wing covers on beetles, those big, heavy, thick things on June bugs or lightning bugs, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the wing covers that the insects don't actually use to fly, they lift those up and open up their real wings. The nighthawks get a lot more nutrition, so they have cica that do anaerobic digestion of the chitin, the bacteria produce chitinase, which is the enzyme that breaks apart the exoskeletons of insects. Whoa. <laughs> I think talking about poop is the perfect way to end bird shit podcast. <laughs> that, uh, that's why I brought it up. <laughs> well, thank you again, Laura, for joining us. This has been honestly one of the most informative and interesting Uh, interviews I've ever been a part of and I honestly have 500 million more questions to ask you but we know you have a life to live so what figured after a couple hours we can probably stop berating you with all these questions (laughs) I had a thoroughly wonderful time talking to you if you want to learn more about Laura we highly encourage you to visit her website lauraerickson.com Her site is filled with lots of useful resources, including all the 101 ways in which you can help birds in your daily life. And in case you're wondering, yes, we are totally sending her a bird shit queen crown. Let us know what you thought about this episode and any other episodes by dropping us a line at hellobirdshit at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Instagram at birdshitpodcast. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies.